Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, and then discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host, Bo Ransdell, this season it's Live from New York, where we are taking on six movies featuring characters from the sketch comedy television show, Saturday Night Live. In 2010, actor, writer, student, and occasional Green Goblin, James Franco, directed a documentary film called Saturday Night. The movie went behind the scenes of how Saturday Night Live is created over a six-day period, and it is truly fascinating. The movie was a school assignment for Franco while he was attending New York University. Now, in this documentary, you get a behind-the-scenes look at the writing process of the show by both the performers and the writing staff themselves. As much as you may know the cast in front of the camera, it is truly a fascinating look at the people behind the jokes and how they torture themselves to crank out a show in a nightmarishly stressful small window of time. There are a lot of talented writers who help generate some of the most incredibly funny and at times incredibly forgettable comedy sketches over the years. The writers room for Saturday Night Live boasts some of the sharpest comedic minds of the past 40 years. Michael O'Donoghue, Jim Downey, Adam McKay, Tom Davis, Jack Handy, Tina Fey. I mean, it is a list of some of the funniest people you may have never heard of writing for a show that almost everybody knows. Now, from time to time, a writer would make it into a sketch as a conquistador or juror number four or a cop escorting an inmate in and out of some jokes. But every so often, a writer for the show found a place to showcase not only their writing abilities, but their comedic acting abilities as well. A. Whitney Brown wrote for Saturday Night Live, but also found a home alongside SNL Weekend Update anchor Dennis Miller in his own segment called The Big Picture. Don Novello was a writer for the show who brought his alter ego, Father Guido Sardici, to Weekend Update with his rose-colored glasses and his ever-present lit cigarette. And another person who made their way from the writer's room to in front of the camera is the subject and the star of this episode. Al Franken started with Saturday Night Live at the very beginning with the original Not Ready for Primetime Players. His history with the show is as rich and varied as his collective career. So how did this unassuming writer make his way from the small screen of SNL to the big screen starring in his own character-driven feature film? In an effort to understand the life of Mr. Al Franken, I turn it over to my co-host Bo Ransdell to explore this talented, funny, politically active, and surprisingly complicated man. In 1969, Franny Bryson was attending Simmons College when she met a short, funny man named Al. When she was 17 months old, her father, a World War II veteran, was killed in a car accident. Her mother, who had four other children besides Franny, raised her children on her paychecks working at a grocery store and the social security benefits provided by the death of her husband. It was not easy. And yet, Franny was bright and eager to attend college. Education, education, education. That was the motto of the Bryson household. She attended with the aid of federal Pell Grants and scholarships. It was here, at Simmons College, that she found herself intrigued by the funny little man named Al, who was majoring in political science at Harvard nearby. 
To the admission of both Al and Franny, it was love at first sight. Al Franken moved from the inner city of New York when he was only four and found himself in Albert Lee, Minnesota, where his father opened a quilting factory, which failed after only two years. From there, the family moved to St. Louis Park, Minnesota, just outside Minneapolis, where he would remain until heading to Harvard in 1969. His family was political, openly discussing issues of the day around the dinner table, and Al's fascination with politics carried with him into college. The other tag-along from his early years was a love of comedy, embodied by his partnership with fellow satirist Tom Davis. That relationship would carry him back to New York, where he and Davis were hired as writers for a fledgling sketch comedy show called Saturday Night Live. Producer Lorne Michaels wanted Franken and Davis, as their team was called, for their political satire, but it was evident early on that the writers served well in front of the camera, too. A personal aside, one of my favorites from this era was a Weekend Update segment in which Tom Davis reintroduced Al to the audience following a theoretical head trauma. Wearing a bandage around Franken's head, Tom Davis encouraged the crowd to applaud as Franken fumbled his way through the jokes, often becoming sidetracked on his way to the punchline. At the end of the 70s, Lorne Michaels was preparing to leave SNL. Al Franken was tapped to be the next producer by Lorne himself, but this was, sadly, not to be. Before the end of the 1979 season, Al Franken appeared on Weekend Update in a segment entitled Limo for a Lamo, in which Franken criticized then-NBC president Fred Silverman's perceived extravagance at a time when NBC ratings were failing. Franken held up a chart showing the poor ratings of NBC primetime shows and referred to Silverman as a, quote, total unequivocal failure. Unsurprisingly, following the airing, Silverman refused to appoint Franken as the new producer of SNL, tapping instead Gene Dumanian, who is largely credited with overseeing the least popular and least funny era of the show. Franken left with Lorne and went off to pursue a career in film, but returned to the show when Lorne Michaels came back in 1985, this time with Franken again as a writer. It was during this era that the subject of our show was born, the self-help guru, Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley first appeared on the February 9, 1991 episode hosted by Kevin Bacon. But to get to the origins of the character, we must turn our attention back to the thin, bespectacled woman in Franken's life, Franny Bryson. Al and Franny were married in 1975, not long after Franken was hired by Saturday Night Live. In 1986, after two children and over a decade of marriage, Franny Franken entered alcohol recovery for the first time. In a campaign ad for her husband, Franny asked the rhetorical question, how could a mother of two fabulous, healthy children be an alcoholic? While Franny was going through her own recovery, Al Franken attended Al-Anon meetings, and it was out of this crucible of sadness and resolve that Stuart Smalley was born. Smalley was quick to point out that he was not, in fact, a licensed therapist, but a participant in several self-help and 12-step programs. A running gag of the sketches was his support for celebrities he didn't recognize and cutting himself off for engaging in, quote, stinking thinking, 
and falling into a shame spiral. The sketches were popular enough that Franken published a book entitled, appropriately enough, I'm Good Enough, I'm Smart Enough, and doggone it, people like me. Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. The audiobook version employed a gag I particularly like, in which the audiobook was labeled with a warning not to listen while driving, except the audiobook itself, which is largely different from the written novel, suggested listeners do just that, close their eyes and envision various scenarios. Both the written and the audiobook were released in 1992 and furthered the popularity of the character, making light of the seeming glut of self-help groups and books on the market. In 1995, Stuart Saves His Family was released, and it was both a critical and a commercial failure. While most savaged the film for its tonal inconsistencies, the most helpful review I found came from Mick LaSalle at the San Francisco Chronicle. He writes, Stuart Saves His Family exists in a peculiar limbo. It's a comedy that isn't funny and a drama that can't be taken seriously. All in all, it's a misfire, but a misfire that's more interesting than a lot of successes. In his review, Roger Ebert is far more kind, stating, quote, The movie is also unobtrusively wise about the real nature of the problems in Stewart's family and doesn't offer easy solutions or a phony happy ending. Following the release and the subsequent tanking of the film, Al Franken fell into a depression. The character appeared in only one more sketch on SNL, in which Smalley bemoans the failure of his film, which was released alongside the far more successful Dumb and Dumber. During a bitter rant in which Stuart Smalley openly weeps, he tells the audience, You didn't want funny and poignant. You wanted dumb and dumber and dumber and dumber. That same year of 1995 brought an end to Franken's role as a writer for Saturday Night Live. He had been angling for a seat in the weekend update chair, which was summarily given to Norm MacDonald, whose own tenure as anchor would be marked by controversy. Franken left SNL and became quite a successful writer. In 2003, he was, to some pride, sued by Fox News for his book, Lies and the Line Liars Who Tell Them, a fair and balanced look at the right, in which he featured now-disgraced host Bill O'Reilly on the cover. The case was quickly dismissed, but politics was in Franken's blood and had been all his life. The time had come to reinvent himself. In 2004, Franken became the host of the O'Franken Factor, a show on the new Air America radio network, which aimed to present a more progressive answer to right-wing radio. The show was later rebranded The Al Franken Show, and he performed for three hours a day, five days a week, until he ended the show on February 14, 2007, by announcing he would run for Senate in his home state of Minnesota. His opponent was Norm Coleman, a lobbyist and former mayor of St. Paul, as well as the holder of the current Senate seat. Franken went after Coleman for his ties to corporations, and Coleman attacked Franken for his intemperate and satirical swipes at pop culture. When the dust settled, Franken had unseated the incumbent by a mere 312 votes out of more than 3 million cast. Franken worked hard in the Senate to shrug off his comedian mantle and presented legislation with Republican co-sponsors, almost all of which provided aid to returning troops from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
quick reminder, those are still happening. He toured with the USO and championed for single-payer health care, continually devoted to social programs that aided the most needy. His wife offered a living example of the programs he endorsed, having been raised and sent to college with the assistance from such programs. Franken was quoted as saying, Conservatives like to say that people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and that's a great idea. But first, you've got to have the boots. And the government gave my wife's family the boots. But Franken couldn't leave behind the satirical barbs completely. He even had his own nemesis, the Texan senator, Ted Cruz. Franken described him as, quote, kind of a toxic guy in an office, the guy who microwaves fish, and wrote in his book, Al Franken, Giant of the Senate, quote, I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my other colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. His career in politics, at least to date, was cut short by accusations from several women, some anonymous, who accused Franken of inappropriate behavior at various points in his career. The truly damning bit of evidence was a photograph of Franken miming a grope of radio personality Leanne Tweeden, who had also stated Franken kissed her without consent during a USO rehearsal. When the photo surfaced, Franken issued a terse apology that read, quote, I certainly don't remember the rehearsal for the skit in the same way, but I send my sincerest apologies to Leanne. As to the photo, it was clearly intended to be funny, but wasn't. I shouldn't have done it. More allegations came out, and Franken ultimately resigned his seat in the Senate less than a month after the initial allegations. Keep in mind, this was at the moment of the Me Too movement's rise to power, and Franken was only one of a number of television, movie, business, and political figures whose alleged past indiscretions had now come home to roost. Ever the provocateur, in his resignation speech, Franken said, quote, I, of all people, am aware there is some irony in the fact I am leaving, while a man who has bragged on tape about his history of sexual assault sits in the Oval Office. And so, Franken now rests in the gallery of the scandalized, those whose work must now forever bear an asterisk. Yes, repulsion is great, but Polanski might be a rapist. Likewise, Franken is something of a comedic genius, and a political figure of no small talent, but he may also be a man who victimized women. It is an uneasy way to end this story, so let's turn our attention back to Franny. During the campaign for Al's Senate seat, Franny released an ad revealing not only her battle with alcoholism, but her admiration for her husband. When I was struggling with my recovery, she said, Al stood right by my side. The Al Franken I know stood by me through thick and thin. Since his departure, his replacement, Amy Klobuchar, said of Franken, he had two acts, and he's still going to have a third. And perhaps it's best we leave it there. The man who is tarnished, but has tried to help others. Embattled, honored, haunted by accusations, and possessed of a rare talent, all are true, and must somehow be reconciled for each of us. As Stuart Smalley once said, you're only as sick as your secrets. And with that, I give you 1995's Stuart Saves His Family.
Welcome back, everyone. Here we are. I am Bo Ranstall. With me, as always, my friend Chad Cooper. Hello, Bo. Howdy. Uh, so we are here talking about our fourth film in our Live from New York series. This one, uh, entitled Stuart Saves His Family, as you heard in the introduction. And uh, so let's get this out of the way. I don't know if we want to have this conversation right off the bat. We are dealing with a movie that is uh, written by and starring a now-disgraced politician. Um, which is very sad because I am, uh, I'm a big Saturday Night Live fan. I, I don't know that I've necessarily talked about this uh, in this series so far. But I, I, like yourself, I think, I'm a bit of a student of the show. I've read all the books on Saturday Night Live that I can get my hands on. I've seen, I think, every episode of the show. Uh, with, eh, it, like I've never seen the Milton Berle episode because that is lost to the ages. I was just going to ask about the Milton Berle episode. <laughs> That's one that I would love to see. Um, you know, maybe with the flip side being a snuff film <laughs> or something, how you, how you track that down. But, uh, but no, I agree. I think being a student of the, the show and a fan of the show and really, um, understanding more about the writers, the performers, the social context really is what drove us to to really do this season. And hopefully, you know, as we sort of talk through this particular episode, um, we'll begin to add, you know, a little more flesh and color and and commentary to not only Al Franken's life, but but this character as well. And I think that the, the intro did an excellent job of really setting up the sort of the the, the heaviness that was the driver of this character and, and ultimately this film. Yeah, it, it is a really surprisingly heavy movie, even though it is framed as a comedy. Um, but yeah. And, and specifically because we're talking about Al Franken, who was one of the original writers on the show and was with the show off and on for its first 20 odd years. So he is instrumental in in sort of what the show like the guy was supposed to be the producer. He was he was going to be the weekend update anchor like he was a mover and shaker when it comes to being a Saturday Night Live personality. And not only did you have the Stuart Smalley stuff, which is probably ironically what he's best known for. But, you know, I love the stuff where he was the the one man news uh, remote news uh, reporter where he had the satellite on his head and every yeah. time he turned to the left or right, the signal would fade, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. It was really funny stuff that, uh, that Al Franken is, it was responsible for. And, uh, you know, had the whole running gag where he would show up on weekend update and would kind of his, the punchline of his bits w when he was talking about politics or culture or whatever, uh, it would end with like, and me, Al Franken. You know, at one point, like at the end of the his run in the 70s, he announced that the 80s were going to be the decade of Al Franken. You know, just weird shit like that that I always adored. And there was something about his very, like, squat, kind of black-framed profile that I always liked, too. That he just looked like a normal dude who happened to be ridiculously funny. I always found... Al Franken's work specifically on Saturday Night Live to be smart and clever and quirky. 
And you combine those things together. And then, you know, layered on top of that of being witty and just weird enough that it doesn't um, color too far outside the lines. I, I've always loved Al Franken. I mean, I remember even as a, a younger person watching uh, Trading Places with him, you know, in the gorilla outfit. I think it was him or Tom Davis one, and just being like, oh, that's Al Franken. You know, he's in this. But yeah, he's... He's a unique talent. I, you know, I, I really enjoyed even his political work. And, and as you said earlier, the way that his career, at least is currently ended, will be interesting to see where he goes from here, if he goes anywhere. So if Al Franken is listening to this, you know, we you got two you, fans Al. out here. Yeah. yeah, we do. We, we love Al. So let's talk about Stuart yeah. Smalley and how he saves his family. All right, so another thing that we should get out of the way right off the bat, this is directed by Harold Ramis, which is almost inscrutable to me. This in no way feels like a Harold Ramis film to me. And I don't know, I mean, it looks good. It's definitely directed by someone who knows what they're doing. But it feels like it lacks the comic touch that I associate with Ramis. It reminds me of... Rob Reiner's latter works, you know, where you, you see it and you're like, <laughs> Rob Reiner directed that. And you're like, yeah. And like, really? Huh? Okay. I mean, his name's on it, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You say so as a confession. <laughs> there- when you said Rob Reiner, for some reason, I thought I heard Rob Schneider. And so I was like, <laughs> what part of the body of his work was like his critically acclaimed blue period? And then I caught up to it. I was like, oh, Rob Reiner. Sure, sure. No, Rob Reiner made good movies for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Gotcha. Ghosts of Mississippi, I think, is where everything went off the rails for him. <laughs> and Rob Schneider, quite frankly. Unrelated, but same time period. So, just that exact date. Right. Just the the opening date of Ghosts of Mississippi was also the pinnacle of Rob Schneider's career. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. You know, we like to be uh, uh, edutainment, uh, as I've often said on this show. So, all right, we open on this movie on on uh, still photographs of various kinds of families. They're sort of old vintage photographs of, of families on Christmas mornings and on vacations and just sitting around the house. And it is... Certainly setting up the idea that the central theme of this movie, as the title suggests, is family. This is all about the relationships that one has in a family. We will talk about the failure and successes of that theme, but that's it. Whenever I see photos of families like this as they as they go through them, um, I always think about like which one of them committed a murder. Or, or how they all died or, you know, which one of them had some really deep, dark secret that they carried to their grave. Like remember in Dead Poet Society when Robin Williams is having the students look at all of the, you know, sort of the alumni that have come before them and, you know, they were sort of giants and, and, and captains of industry yeah, or, food or for creative worms, forces. Lads. I just. Right. I, right. I think about like, like which one of them had a, a fetish for fucking furniture. Like it was that guy. <laughs> like, 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 <laughs> like which one of these, which one was the, was the one that, that ate their earwax all the time. I, I, I always think of this when I see old pictures. <laughs> That's weird. 
when I I know, but at the same time, I have an an opposite but equally equally weird response. And there is no way I'm getting out of this episode without confessing something terrible about myself. So just to get that out of the way, when I see movies like this where they start with like, oh, here are pictures of the family. I'm like, you know what? I do not own a single picture of my family assembled together. I do not own one. In fact, I, as to the best of my knowledge, only one exists. So I was going to ask how many exist. And I, I'm talking, you know, stepmother, not real mother. But even then, I think there's one that I know of that hangs in my stepmother's home. And that's it. Like I said, just to get this out of the way, as I watch this movie, there is no uh, no arguing that my father was one of the great alcoholics I have ever known. Um, and I've known some good ones. I went to college, Chad. <laughs> so in watching this movie, this movie lands with me in a weird place because a lot of it is terribly familiar to me. So watching this opening scene of all these familial pictures, you know, especially after having seen the movie a couple of times in preparation for the show, there is something incredibly bittersweet about it. And that picture of your family, it wasn't taken by chance by a red light running camera. Was it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was an Olin Mills uh, photograph. I was probably about 12 at the time. And there's a lot of polyester stripes happening. I mean, this is still 1985. You can get away with that. It is as uncomfortable an assembly as you can imagine. Like everyone <laughs> smile. To say they're forced, I think, is to detract from the discomfort that everyone seems to be feeling. It, it's sort of the smiles in the picture are like if the Joker released a toxin <laughs> in the photo studio, and that's the grimace that we all have. Um, <laughs> but all right, so we've got Al Franken as Stuart Smalley. Uh, we have the judge from Ghostbusters 2 as his dad. Uh, you have Laura San Giancomo, a.k.a. Oh, that lady from the Stan miniseries, I think. And and I think the real su surprise member of the cast for me was Vincent D'Onofrio, who I had completely forgotten was in this movie. It, it, it serves two purposes. One, it tests my theory that Vincent D'Onofrio makes everything he's in a little bit better. Also, that this is the stage in D'Onofrio's career where he clearly gave a shit. Because he had not cast off the leading man kind of look and just got deeply into Cinnabons or whatever, like he did when it, the criminal intent years rolled around. And he was just like, look, I'm going to be wearing a trench coat and daddy likes his cookies. <laughs> he was good on criminal intent. He was great on criminal intent. I, I unabashedly love Vincent D'Onofrio. I think he's a great actor. And I think I love him more just because he ha he seems to have that attitude of like, just somebody say cheesecake, and I am on board. He should have been Thor again. Remember when he was Thor in that Adventures in Babysitting movie? Yeah, that would have been pretty good. He wasn't really Thor; he was just a mechanic. But he looked like Thor. He did look like Thor. Although when I when I see him now, what 
leaps to mind is I need some sugar water. Like that's what that's the <laughs> D'Onofrio that runs through my head. I always go back to pile from, from Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, that that first impression left a lasting impression on me. I can't shake that no matter what I see. It's always him sitting in that lime green bathroom on that you know toilet of the row of toilets and it's i saw that movie when i was at an impressionable age and i remember watching like well this is weird how's this gonna end oh my god like what just happened you know i was i hadn't seen enough films read enough books and and uh, explored the world to be able to to see where that one was going so uh seeing uh d'onofrio's brains get splattered all over a bathroom wall that's that that's what i go to and then after that it's you know fat trench coat and then it's sugar water in that order yeah which is it's funny because this season we have both d'onofrio from criminal intent and uh in wayne's world 2 we talked about olivia davo who was his nemesis in criminal intent which just means eventually we're going to do a season that is just us watching Criminal Intent. <laughs> it's all leading to that. After we get through the credits, we then go to a, an episode of Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And it's kind of a Wayne's World sort of vibe, uh, the movie, not, not the sketch, where we're getting behind the scenes. Like we're seeing the show being taped. And... Oh, here's another heartbreaker in this moment. Is it how much you missed Phil Hartman? Yes, that is exactly my note. Like hearing him say, you know, Stuart Smalley is not a licensed therapist. And yeah, it, it is absolutely heartbreaking every time I hear his voice and think he should still be alive. It, it, like the, the way his life ended wasn't drugs or like crazy lifestyle he just married the wrong person. Uh, there are now three people that when I think of them, it makes me terribly sad that they're dead. None of them are family members. Sure. One of them. Yeah, fuck those guys. One of them is Phil Hartman. Another is Tim Russert. And then most recently, Tom Petty. That every time footage of them in the right environment, you you get Phil Hartman in that jingle all the way or certain episodes of news radio. And I'm just like, what happened to you? But when I watched that original Pee Wee's Playhouse live presentation, I, I missed the hell out of him. And again, same thing for Tim Russert. Whatever I see, you know, go Bills or they're showing him with Florida, Florida, Florida. And just and then Tom Petty, I'm just like, like damn, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Selfishly, I have that reaction with George Carlin, even though he was older and had lived rough for a while. But especially in today's current political climate, I, boy, I wish his voice were around just to deflate some of that anxiety for me. I think if George Carlin was around now, he would just live in a house with the blinds drawn and anytime any fan or reporter or just, you know, delivery person showed up, he would just, you know, aim a gun through a hole and just, just, you just keep on moving. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably right, but it would still do my heart good to know he was somewhere out there. And I would love his, his Twitter account. 
after we we get over the emotional devastation of hearing Phil Hartman's voice, uh, Stuart Smalley announces his his show Daily Affirmations is being moved from noon to two forty five a.m. and then publicly outs his boss as the reason for this. Uh, right, I got. I'm going to jump in here. If I had a public access show, do you know what time slot I want? Middle of the night where you're talking to insomniacs, new parents with infants, the unemployable, drug addicts. I mean, it's just this cross section of late night humanity. And it's like, that's your audience. We talked about this a little bit with Wayne's World of the wacky, weird shit that made it to the airwaves of public access it was like what you know adult swim to be now but just imagine just dragging that through the gutter and cesspool of of youtube it was it was awesome i mean there would just be the craziest weird stuff in the middle of the night that's not necessarily a bad thing for Stuart. it is maybe because he's trying to talk to you know people that may benefit from from his self-help philosophy but if it was me, 2.45 a.m., got it. In fact, here's a quick thing. I had a friend of mine who had this brilliant idea that he wanted to buy airtime on a television station that reran the news. Um, it, was a, it, it was a channel that reran like the, the morning, midday, and afternoons, and, and then they reran it all day. And what he wanted to do was buy the commercial time between the news segments that when it re-aired between midnight and say 6 a.m. in the morning. But what he wanted to do was to use the commercial time to do his own news programming. So he, he had this brilliant idea of setting up a fake news set and then reporting just insane bullshit. And then at the end of his segments where the, like for the three minutes of the commercial, he would be like, uh, and now, uh, this commercial break. At which point they would show the real news and then cut back to him making up crazy shit. And I thought it was just a brilliant idea. That we is a good idea. Uh, that <laughs> There is something Kaufman-esque about that. That was, that was really great. He wanted to collect some money, probably through Kickstarter. He could, he could have done this back in the day. Of uh, Remember those billboards about like, you know, that thing about, you know, love thy neighbor. I meant it. God. And, you know, like, you know, cheating on your wife is a sin. You know, God, he wanted to do instead of the black billboards with the white letters, he wanted to do red billboards with white letters and just be like, you know, that thing you were thinking about doing, just go ahead and do it. The devil. <laughs> yeah. Just to, to counter the God billboards. He's a funny guy. I actually remember this conversation because always <laughs> my favorite of all the devil billboards was go ahead. No one's looking. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh huh. So after Stewart uh, reveals that his show is being moved to 2.45 a.m. and he uh, calls his his boss uh, out on, you know, not, I guess, local television, public access television, we then cut from this scene to him having lunch, in in theory, with Laura Sangiancomo, a.k.a. I think she was that girl in The Stand. But it turns out he is not having lunch with her. He's actually a waiter there and is being called over to uh, a table where 
uh, a customer is ordering some food and Stuart Smalley's character keeps making low fat suggestions, even though the guy isn't really fat. Maybe I'm thinking by, you know, 2000 blah, 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 blah standards or whatever. But looking at this guy, I was like, ah, you know, he goes on a, you know, just watches what he eats for like a month or six weeks and he's in perfectly fine health. The the punchline to this bit, though, is that the guy orders another scotch and Stuart just says no and walks away, which I thought was pretty funny. I got a question that I just we need to go ahead and talk about right now. Is Stuart Smalley a homosexual or is he an effeminate man or is he just someone really sensitive to his feelings? And let me just say. It doesn't really matter, but it kind of does. And I say that because I'm trying to understand his relationship to, at this point, this nameless female friend, which is weird that they don't give her a name. It turns out her name is uh, Julia. Yeah. And there are some scenes later that, that sort of add a little more context around this. And for me, I fell into the camp that Stuart Smalley was just somebody who was very sensitive to their feelings and again, that's okay, but it just seems to be this sort of ever-present thing that's not really addressed. I mean, later on, his dad calls him Liberace, you know, which, <laughs> like, well, we know where your, his dad's coming from on that. And we don't ever, you know, we don't see Stuart Smalley playing the piano or with a candelabra collection. So again, you know, I think we know well, how Pops falls on this whole thing. Do you have a take on Stuart Smalley and sort of his... His sexual orientation, especially for the time in which the, either the sketch was originated or when the movie came out? I'm glad you asked, Chad, because I do have some information here. Uh, this wasn't a plan. In fact, Chad and I have never met. But <laughs> in my research, what I discovered is there is one oblique kind of reference to him being gay. And it's when he is talking about, and this comes from the the book, uh, the Daily Affirmations book that he put out, where he talks about his relationship with, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, but it was a male name who was a rageaholic. And that is the only reference. And it's it wasn't 100% gender specific kind of name. But it wasn't like a Chris or uh, Pat. or Pat or something like that. <laughs> oh fuck! And just keep on going. Yeah, just keep on. Walking. I'm sorry, to see <laughs> it, folks. Just keep on. Walking. Um, but but yeah, I had the I had the same problem in this scene, not with his his sexuality. Although originally I I was in the same place you were, where I thought he was just a very effeminate guy, but. I think the suggestion is that he's gay, but it kind of – it doesn't really matter to the story, but it does, like you said, matter to this relationship with Julia, who in, – in fact, in my notes here in this scene, I actually say I don't know her relationship with him. I don't know if she's family, if she's just a friend or whatever. And as it turns out, she was uh, one of his sponsors. And she suggests in this scene that he needs to go make amends to his boss. Therefore, he does. And when he shows up, the receptionist there 
is all smiles. She's a really is like sweet young girl. And when she is announcing that Stuart Smalley is there, Roz says over the boss intercom, or PA, I don't know, what the hell do you call those? Or is it just an intercom? I guess it's an intercom. It's just, it's lazy. You know, sure. you just push a button to yell at somebody who's outside the door. You, the, the receptionist there is really into cats. Did you notice that? And she had like cat magnets and little cat paraphernalia. And you know, in movies, women that like cats are typically not viewed very positively. Unless you're talking about Catwoman. You know, she likes cats and people like her. But I don't think that this secretary is Catwoman. She might be. I can't say that, you know, one way or the other. Sure. Well, we're not, we don't know what her backstory is. Uh, <laughs> but, but she starts crying to Stuart and he sits and listens to her. And then the receptionist tells Stuart that his boss, Roz, doesn't like him. And then when Roz comes out, she's screaming about this, you know, like a cheeseburger. And when Roz sees Stuart and she reluctantly, you know, lets him in the office. And Roz, for those who haven't seen this movie, she looks like the Bigfoot hunter from Harry and the Hendersons, just with a slightly lesser beard. Oh, my God. It, it's not meant to be an insult, and it's it's definitely not a compliment. It's just an observation. Yes. But, but I think it's an insult it now is. that I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's flattering, but it's also incredibly true. She also looks like one of those two interchangeable bad guys from the police Academy movies. Remember how they did the old switcheroo with those actors. And I don't know those guys names or whatever, but like in one of them, it was like, you know, one of them was like heartbreak, you know, bar bricker. And the other one was brick Barker. And you're like, is that the guy? Like, I don't know. He's just the one who's running around with this other, you know, waif of a sidekick. So yeah, it's the same guy. Who cares? He's going to end up going into the, the, the gay bar at the end and dancing with, you know, a homosexual that's not Stuart Smalley. Roz calls him <laughs> into her office. Stuart, at this point, genuinely apologizes. You know, he says, look, I came in here because I was going to uh, I apologize and try to get my job back. But I realized I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And I just want to say what I said on the air was hurtful. And I'm, I'm genuinely sorry. And Ross says, I'm glad you're here. I appreciate the apology. And I just want to read you some letters that we got since that show. And they are letters thanking the station for canceling the show, which Roz gets more and more gleefully evil about as she reads them. And we see a couple of times in the film where this happens, where Stuart, who is as incredibly sensitive and in, in touch with his emotions and, and always trying to be in control, uh, grabs the, the folder of letters that Roz has, tries to tear them up, but doesn't have the core strength to, then throws them down and calls Roz a weenie. It, he actually, he calls her a horrible, nasty, dysfunctional weenie. And you're expecting like bitch or something more vulgar. And then he says weenie. The joke doesn't really land. I mean, it's just, it, it maybe if anything sort of tells you more about Stuart that he wouldn't go to something more biting in his name calling. But I want to go back just a moment. Because when Roz reads these letters saying, hey, you know, thank you for taking this touchy-feely 
goofball off the air, she makes a comment that one person who was a Holocaust survivor in Skokie um, preferred the skinhead hour to Stewart's show, which made me think of Wayne's World, where, remember, white supremacist world had to change time slots around so they could go see Aerosmith in concert? What's up with all the, you know, Aryan white supremacist skinheads getting airtime on public access? Who's making that decision? Well, again, it was a simpler time, Chad, when joke tellers of the world, (laughs) such as Al Franken and Mike Myers, used skinheads being on the air as like, hey, wouldn't this be just the most ridiculous thing you ever heard? And unfortunately, we now live in a world where uh, that not only happens, (laughs) but it seems to be somewhat encouraged. Do you think that that is in line with, say, for example, the Nazis from the Blues Brothers, where when you watch that and you're just like, well, of course, that's ridiculous. And they're the bad guys that in you know the present cultural and political environment, it's just like, how dare they persecute these gentlemen? Right. You know, like, there are good people on both sides, Chad. And like any which way, you know, that there's a certain uh, segment of the population that is uh Uh, thoroughly getting up in arms as Clyde knocks out Nazi bikers like that son of a bitch orangutan. How dare he? Right. How dare he, sir? I'm sure there is someone who is approaching the film Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time and wondering what all the beef is. Do a little Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, flip it on its head. You know what I mean? Like like Beowulf and Grendel. Like, I want to see Raiders from the perspective of the Nazis. Right. Did you ever did you ever think about that? That would be that would be enlightening. You know, walk a mile in another man's shoes. The road less taken. You know, how Hitler. Wait, what did you say? <laughs> you just see the you know the map overlay and the red dot slowly approaching Charlottesville. <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> so, so we finally get the reveal after this. That Julia is, in fact, Stuart's Al-Anon sponsor, which, as we pointed out in the uh, in the introduction, th- the origin of this character comes from the fact that uh, Al Franken himself attended a lot of Al-Anon meetings. And did you know did you know what Al-Anon was? Of course, I to, did. Did you? Oh. I, you? See, I didn't. And. When I looked it up and saw that it's, you know, kind of this program for families and, you know, friends of alcoholics, you know, that are sort of dealing with that, whether or not their alcoholic friend or family member is going to to AA or something like that. Now, and I kind of thought I was like, well, hell, isn't that everybody? Yes, <laughs> sadly so. Uh, but we had the literature in our house, Chad. Um Given that as you walk as you walked in, there was a stand of like, please take one. Yeah, there might as well have been. I mean, given the number of times that my dad was in rehab or some treatment program or another, like we had all the the twelve step books and brochures from treatment centers and support groups, and oh, I I have read more than any living human ever should. About the fallout of alcoholic relatives. So, yes, I not only did I know it, 
I, I could actually probably lead a meeting. <laughs> you walk in and everybody's just like, whoa! Right, I'm, no. ironically, yeah, the norm of Al-Anon. Um, so, because of uh, this blow to his ego, Stuart Smalley is now, sorry, I started laughing again about the brochure rack just inside the door of my house. <laughs> so true. And <laughs> so Stuart is has taken to bed along with uh Fig Newtons and and two liters of soda. And did you think about Brian Regan eating a sleeve of Fig Newtons like a chipper shredder? <laughs> I didn't then, now I do. I can't I cannot see a Fig Newton and just and and my brain immediately just sees Brian Regan head back 90 degree angle doing the ah! I love Brian Regan. I I always think of uh, the the fact that all fig newtons contain bugs because that's how figs are are uh, brought to maturity. Well, now you've earned them for me. Well, I mean, they're not that great a cookie to begin with. It's not like we're riding in the high country with fig newtons. You know, I'll take I'll tell you what I'll take a sugar cookie over a fig newton just about any day, and the sugar cookie is like the, you know, minor league baseball of the cookie world. <laughs> Who could give a shit? So after his uh after his sponsors all come in and they're checking on him, Stuart gets a phone call telling him that his aunt has died and he has to come home. And at this point in the movie, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is our inciting incident. Stuart will leave the big city, go home, and he will save his family, as the movie's title implies will be done. Right, but on, that is not the case. There's a whole lot of back and forth here. Uh, but this time around, Stuart is taking a bus home to Minnesota, interestingly enough. This bus that he's on, it's a Greyhound. It looks like a club car from Amtrak. Because every Greyhound, like legit Greyhound that I've ever been on and seen, is filled with runaways and methadone patients and like yet to be identified serial killers. This bus looks like it's on its way to a church revival or gospel jubilee. Did you see this? Everyone's looking out the window, smiling. And, you know, what I mean? like, like no one is, is like flossing their toes openly. It's, it's just, it's, it's way too clean. Sorry, Greyhound. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. It, this is a heightened reality where buses aren't, the the stomping grounds of the unwashed masses which is really the case like taking a bus means you have no other alternative besides walking right right short of walking or hitching rides you <laughs> don't have a car you don't have the wherewithal to rent a car you can't afford the plane to get you to wherever it is that it's going but you can scrape together 19 I bucks and two bottles of, of questionable gin that will get you through that trip. <laughs> You've got $7.42 and a nice Casio. <laughs> I get on board. I'll take you where you're going. Right. Yeah. You know, just $8 and a pocket full of dreams. That's all you need for a Greyhound. <laughs> Stuart is narrating this. He, he's writing in his journal, and, and we hear the voiceover. And we get a little bit of backstory here about his family, notably that all the men in his family 
are generally alcoholics and seem to die from falling off of roofs or roofs, depending on which part of the country you come from. And that this is, as it turns out, we'll, we'll find out later, a bit of a fear of, of Stewart's as well. And that uh, his family is marked by tragedy and by, by the disease of alcoholism and one presumes fast on the heels depression. So, wait, you're saying the fear of alcoholism, not the fear of falling off roofs. Yes. Well, but he also has a fear of his father falling off of a roof as well, which hasn't happened yet. Well, because his dad's a drunk. Right. You know, Stewart himself says, like, well, when you hear people falling off of roofs, generally speaking, that's because they slip or whatever. In, in my family, it's just because they get real loaded and try to change storm windows and end up falling off the roof and killing themselves. So, you know, you touched on this in the introduction and we, we've talked about it a little bit and we'll talk about it more. What am I talking about? Well, <laughs> just the fact that this movie is really about substance abuse in so many ways and the impact that it has on people's lives. And because substance abuse is a hilarious topic for a goofy oddball comedy, why is it that drinking gets such a bad rap in movies just unilaterally. You know what I mean? Like when you're watching a movie and someone starts drinking, it's never seen as, oh, this is going to end well. You know, like characters, they get drunk. Well, I don't I mean, maybe if you go back to kind of, you know, like, like noir type films that maybe, you know, a detective or, you know, kind of when men were men, but even still, it, it's never, it's never like, you know, Popeye with his spinach or something like that. Like it's, it's that, Alcohol is a means by which to establish that a, that a person is reliant on this vice or it's going to uh, impact them in such a way that they do dangerous and terrible things. In fact, I kind of I just in thinking through it, I was like, what's the only movie where alcohol serves a character well? And it's like Jackie Chan's drunken master movies, which are fantastic films, right? Like the only way that I can kick ass and take names is to be just obliterated and drunk. And it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, get, get him drunk. That'll make it. Or even if you have a movie that does that, it's, it's sort of, it's silly and upside down. But for the most part, when people start drinking, it's like, uh Oh, well, here we go again. All right. I'll, I'll give you two answers here. One of them's true. Uh, and first of all, just to clarify in legend of drunken master and its sequels, there is a fine line where Jackie can get too drunk and he is useless, but there is that sweet spot. It's the, the two beers when you're playing pool, when you, you get in the groove, you're not too drunk that you're uncoordinated, but you're not so sober that you're overthinking it. It's just loosen things up, just loosen things. Up. Right. It's what I like to call 11 AM. <laughs> Now, the true answer to this is that most, not uh, most may be overstating it, but I would say a healthy percentage of people who strike out to Hollywood to become screenwriters have somebody back at home that they are trying to deal with even a thousand miles away. And that the reason that you see so many negative portrayals of alcoholism in films is because you're dealing with the children 
or current alcoholics who are clearly mm. not dealing with it well. Yes, yes, Mr. Renzel, tell me more. Tell me more about this theory of yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I say that as someone who uh, has never written a script. <laughs> well, not one with somebody who's a who's a crazy drunk that, uh, <laughs> that makes... This, as I've said, this movie hits a little close to home for me. Uh, and it, it's hard to get around with it. So, well, let's. Uh, well, you know what? You know what? I, let, let's see if we can divert and deal with a, uh, some subject matter that isn't uh, so close to home. Okay, so uh, Stuart takes uh, a, a trip back to um, his home, and he is greeted by his pot smoking unemployed brother. Oh shit! I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Anyway, Donnie. <laughs> Who's played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, okay. Now I'm back on board. <laughs> and again, as we mentioned other D'Onofrio had been in a lot of different movies. He had been in, you know, again, the mind-blowing uh, experience, Full Metal Jacket. He did, you know, Mystic Pizza with Julia Roberts. He was in, he, I, I'd forgotten until I did some, you know, again, research, that he was in JFK. He was in Robert Altman's The Player. I did not know that he played Orson Welles in Ed Wood. Uh-huh. But then he had his voice dubbed by uh, Maurice LaMarche, who was really just doing his voice of the brain from Pinky and the Brain, which was just an Orson Welles impression. So that came full circle and just went around two or three times. D'Onofrio had a career behind him. And there was part of me who was just like, what the hell are you doing in this movie? Well, but again, it's Harold Ramis directing and Al Franken, who is no slouch himself. And D'Onofrio isn't a bad comedic actor. And and coming off of being human and JFK and and that sort of thing, I kind of get him wanting to do something a little goofy. And, and stretch his legs a little bit. His portrayal of Donnie, he looks like a 27-year-old version of every sibling from Home Improvement. He's got like the, the, the plaid shirt, the backwards ball cap, that haircut. It's kind of that overgrown bushy mop that's split down the middle with long bang with long bangs. He's got that he's got this huge Ned Flanders mustache. Kind of one of those like like just because you can grow a mustache this full, therefore you're going to to make you look more manly. And when he when he picks up Stewart at the the bus station, um, he tells him uh, that the reason that he's on his motorcycle is because I totaled the Accord. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty funny line. I my problem I think with D'Onofrio's performance in the upfront of this, although I think it pays off later is that he is such a straight man to Stewart's character, but he's also a little loosey-goosey, you know, because the character, of course, is stoned out of his gourd all the time. But it feels almost like he's in a different movie than Al Franken is in, which is, you know, hey, listeners, get used to this chorus. Hey, this joke doesn't land, and this feels like it's in the wrong movie. That will happen a ton. And this is one of the big moments where it starts for me, where I feel like you're watching two characters who are in two different films. And as we talk more about this film, I felt after having, we'll talk more about this, you know, as we go through the movie, but I feel like that this whole film should have been his aunt dies. He comes back to uh, see his family 
And over the period of, let's say, three, four, five days, he saves his family, as, as the title states, that it should be more of a uh, the big chill type of movie. That over these few days, you have this oddball character who comes back and we learn about his relationship with each member of his family and through his own, you know, unconventional ways really helps them come together and deal with some heavy issues. I think the problem with the film is that we sort of bounce from his hometown back to the big city, back to the hometown, back to the big city, and just tonally it's a bit all over the place. And I think that you could probably even take his, his sponsor character, Julie, who becomes sort of his best friend and have her, you know, come to the, the funeral with him to at least be a sounding board for the craziness that is his family and maybe have her be a proxy for the audience in some way of sort of watching how he reacts to them. They don't really do any of that. And I think that that would have been a better framework to really help to deal with some of the heavier issues that the movie gets into. Yeah, I I totally agree. So when he gets home, his mother is cooking up a ton and it turns out that's kind of her thing. That's how she deals with stress is she just constantly cooks and makes food for people and takes care of them. And he asks her why she's cooking so much. And then she takes some affront to that. And he apologizes for being critical and says like, Hey, I'm going to make amends. And she says, that's uh, you know, that's some of the talk that I've heard out of you. Then that conversation kind of wraps up with her saying, uh, after he says, you know, well, they actually canceled my show. And she says, well, I told you that would happen, which is not supportive at all. It's something that the mother from the ref would say. <laughs> or or the mom from American Beauty. Yes. You know, I watched you the whole time and you didn't mess up once. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. All right. And, and again, to dive into uh, Bo's personal stories for one second. This uh, happened with with my own mom. This was around the age of 12 or 13, I think. Maybe it was even younger than that. It was was about fifth grade. And it was when I I realized that my vision was starting to get bad because I was having trouble, even sitting in the front of the class, I was having trouble seeing the blackboard and stuff like that. Or overhead projector. Uh, For kids, those were things we looked at uh, years ago. And... So I tell uh, I tell my stepmom, hey, I think there's something wrong uh, with my vision. I think I might need glasses. I think I need to go to the eye doctor. And so she schedules the appointment, and I remember this so well. This one of the clearest memories I have of my childhood is being in that car on the way to the optometrist and her looking at me and saying, there better be something wrong with your eyes. Whoa. Uh-huh. <laughs> knowing your stepmom uh, uh, none of this is surprising at all yeah. when i said whoa i was i was actually surprised it wasn't a hell of a lot worse <laughs> so uh Stuart's father then shows up and says sees you know uh, Stuart writing in his journal and he, and he says well you ought to call your journal a waste of space and then we get a flashback where we are uh, uh, some dialogue from Stuart where he talks about how uh, that was his father's nickname for him, for Stuart, when he was a kid, was a waste of space. Establishing that the relationship with his mother is not necessarily combative, 
but it, it's certainly fraught with landmines. And his relationship with his father is overtly aggressive. You know, the dad in this reminded me a little bit of uh, Louis Anderson's dad from his animated series, Life with Louis. Just kind of that, hey, what are you doing? It was like this Archie Bunker, almost like this archetype of the 1950s, 1960s dad. Um, and again, as we sort of see how this character plays out, it's, it's it, oddly enough, it's like Archie Bunker, but without all the feel-good, hugging <laughs> kindness. Yeah. Well, that Carol O'Connor presented with his character. It's like, get rid of all of the humanity and compassion that Archie Bunker was known for. And then the empty shell that's left. Yeah, that's this dad. Yeah, and the guy's name is Harris Eulen. He has been in everything. He, but I, here's who he is. You mentioned it earlier, but just to to put to he's the judge from Ghostbusters too, who gets all mouthy and brings back the Scalari brothers. Right, you know they're flying around. He's just he's a dickhead in that, and he's a dickhead in this. Yeah, he it's that guy. He plays a great asshole for sure. <laughs> it was great casting. He didn't have to do anything. He's 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 a piece of shit in this, and it's great. Yeah. He's one of the most entertaining characters, and he feels kind of tonally consistent with Stuart, which is something that not every character can say. So we go to the funeral where his sister, where Stuart's sister Jody, has had a lumbar spasm and is lying on the floor beside the coffin, complaining about sort of her situation. She's been married a couple of times to, to some terrible guys, she's a single mom. And Stuart suggests that maybe she goes to another Overeaters Anonymous meeting because he's saying, like, look, your pain, I understand that uh, your back is spasming, but do you think maybe your weight is part of the problem? And she kind of freaks out on him about it. I like that Stuart is trying to help people, but at the same time, he's making things worse. You know I mean, like, he's not the solution. He's he just adds to the problem in so many ways. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, but also he's he's full of good intentions. He's he's not coming at it from a place of malice and he's never really wrong. It's just he doesn't have the tact to broach these subjects easily. And it's just like, hey, you look like you're overweight. But it also comes from a place of him having been through it himself and is trying to be direct and, you know, in touch with his emotions and all that. And and in comparison to something like It's Pat, <laughs> where the character is so intensely unlikable, the thing that's kind of refreshing about this is that Stuart is a likable character. He's He's flawed, for sure. But he's trying to do the right thing, and at the end of the day, his whole goal is trying to get himself out of you know a place of depression and darkness that is constantly looming you know that he's he's got a lot of unrequited and unresolved psychological issues and that's why he's in all these 12 step programs and yes there's an element of parody to this like when we first see his apartment when he's gorging himself on fig newtons there's also like crystals on the table and, and shit like that decorating his place, which suggests a little bit of kind of hippy dippy new age stuff. But one of the things that I think this movie was sort of ahead of the curve on in a way 
was the idea that, hey, maybe psychiatry and therapy isn't completely bogus, you know, because he is the most well put together member of his family. It's just that he's also the one that's most easily mocked by his family. How happy were you when Joe Flatterly showed up as Ray the cousin? Um, I mean, if you're asking me if Count Floyd appearing in anything makes it a little bit better, the answer is yes. I, I would say it's somewhat offset by Robin Duke being uh, his wife. But yes, Joe Flaherty, I think, is fantastic. I'm, you know, I think we're both big Second City uh, fans and every time I see him what I think of is Count Floyd mumbling his way through what a, a horror movie he's about to present is about without having any real clear idea of what the plot is um, I love every sketches. time every every time I see Joe Flatley I agree I think about Count Floyd but before that all I can think of is are you Marty McFly? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm just like, what the hell are you doing in Back to the Future? Like Joe Flatterly, what? You know, and I, I the only person who could have who could have portrayed the Western Union uh, message delivery character and been more out of place would have been if Rodney Dangerfield had shown up there. You know what I mean? I'm just like. like Hey, are, are you Marty McFly? Whoa. <laughs> just like cracking wise and, and just again, being his coked up alcoholic, you know, <laughs> old man self. Like, what in the hell is going on here? A color of money <laughs> era, Paul Newman. <laughs> are you Marty McFly? Holy shit, you're handsome. <laughs> You've been good looking your whole life. I Can you really drive a race car? Man. Can you fly a DeLorean? <laughs> Paul Newman is one of those guys that you couldn't get the question, would you swap places out of your mouth before I was like, yes, I would love to be old blue eyes <laughs> and like just for an hour, uh, whatever, man. I mean, give me, give me 30 minutes and you can shave a decade off my life and it's a fair <laughs> trade. Stuart and his brother in the next scene after this the, the the funeral they haven't buried her yet but after the funeral Stuart and his brother are in their childhood bedroom which looks like this Leave It to Beaver you know style bedroom Leave It to Beaver was a TV show that your great grandparents watched you know for the younger listeners Stuart finds what is easily like a pound of weed in his brother's top drawer I mean it is a sack of weed and his brother's got a bong just sitting out in the open i mean he is really a professional pot smoker you know he's looking at getting on the circuit right t taking it at least pro-am look i think we've all known those folks uh and his arc in this movie is actually probably my favorite through line of the film where at this point where he is just a degenerate pothead who lives at home and has no job or car, uh, I, I'm like, eh, I'm not saying I've been exactly there, but I've been kissing cousins with that spot. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you follow the conversation that they have about where the ant's going to be buried and the number of plots 
and who's buried in the extra plot, but they can't do this because people have to be buried together. Yeah, it well, like they, they sort of it doesn't make any sense. Did you did you were you able to kind of connect one plus two plus two plus one plus two to understand what the hell's going on? No, there? it feels like a real dropped through line because when Joe Flaherty is saying you can't bury her here, then someone asks, well, you know, there are, there are two plots. And they're like, no, 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 there's only one plot left. And they, I think it's Stewart who asks, well, who's buried in the other plot then? And Joe Flaherty's response is, well, that's for me to know and you to find out. And that's kind of the classic flatterly. Oh, my God. But that's kind of the last (laughs) time it's it's meant. I mean, it, it comes up again that there's only one plot. But who's in the other grave? is never really addressed to the best of my knowledge. And I watched this movie a couple of times and the second time through, I was really paying attention, Chad. And I know, and I, (laughs) and I have no idea that like the only thing that stuck with me outside of that in this scene is the fact that Stuart describes them as the cousins who accidentally poisoned the family dog. Mm, That's good. Yeah. I was going to, I always go with mistress. Or or dead love child. I got one of those in my family tree, a dead love child. Yeah, I've got a living one, I think. I don't know. We'll compare mm. notes later on love children. Right. But yeah, so after the funeral, we get to the scene that you were talking about with, with Donnie and Stuart talking. And here is where Stuart is saying Donnie is getting worse and is starting to become more and more like their father. But in contrast to that, we get a moment where Stuart says, you know, it wasn't all bad. There were good times. And he flashes back to a scene where the neighborhood kids are playing football and the football accidentally goes into the yard of mean Mr. Dimmitt, who who lives nearby. And uh, Mr. Dimmitt scares them off and, and keeps their football. But when Harris Eulen comes home, they that night after work and it looks like he's either a postman or a milkman or something he's got a uniform and a hat and i associate that with milkman for some reason even though even (laughs) as old as i am never lived at a time where milkman showed up at your door with you know a wire carrier of glass bottles of milk or nothing i was thinking i was thinking postman he looked like you know mr zip or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And when he comes when he comes home and the kids are there and they say, like, hey, the neighbor took our football after we threw it in his yard, the dad goes over and like kicks down the door to the garage and he says, quote, maybe you'd like to pick on someone with pubic hair. Which part of me is like, that might be interpreted as a pickup line. Cause the guy looks back and he's like, huh? And the dad walks in and says, Do you want to give me the ball or would you like me to shove it up your ass? Which, again, I'm like, is he coming on to me? <laughs> right. And then his next question is, do you want to hear my preference? And then the guy gives the ball back. And his kids are watching this whole exchange. And the dad goes, ah, nuts. And all I'm thinking is, like, look, all this talk of balls and sticking things up people's asses and nuts. You get these kids out of the scene. And we're definitely in the vicinity of gay porn. Oh, yeah. You're next door, at least. And with the kids there, you're just in dark web porn. <laughs> the football. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you call you call that one tight end. 
Gross. Is that the most obvious joke there? <laughs> I think so. But when we, we cut to Stuart and Donnie as kids that night, they're encouraging the dad to retell the story and they're doting on him because for once the father took their side and did something nice for them. Although one could argue that that was just because this guy is filled with rage and any opportunity where he can justifiably express it is probably going to be taken. You don't think the kids were just like, this is awesome. He didn't beat the shit out of us. He threatened to beat the shit out of the neighbor. (laughs) He's great. Very possibly, but weirdly, I don't think this movie would gloss that over. You know, like it, in given the other subject matters that we're going to deal with in this film, the idea of like, you know, dad, not only was rude to us and he drank all the time. Sometimes he liked to bounce mom off the walls, you know, like that would not be out of character for this film. The most memorable moment I have of my father is when he went next door to the neighbor's house and threatened to sodomize him with a football after asking him if he would like to fight someone who has pubic hair. My dad. My hero. But that is legitimately the most heroic thing this character does in the movie. So, <laughs> you know, it's all relative. Quite literally. Um, so, now we go to the funeral proper. Where uh, Cousin Ray is there. A.K.A. Joe Flaherty. A.K.A. the... Uh, telegram guy from Back to the Future. A.K.A. Count Floyd. A.K.A. He's awesome. Yeah, Joe Flaherty (laughs) is awesome. So, Ray is there with cops preventing the burial. At which point, the father tries to bury the coffin himself by getting Donnie to help him drag it out of the hearse towards the grave. Which then results in a brawl with police. And punching cops, punching cops, and Donnie and Stewart's dad are then arrested. They spend a night in jail, and this is the first of two crimes that they are convicted and punished for in this film, at least by my count. Yes, and then kind of unceremoniously off camera, really. They uh they bury Aunt Paula in the in a Catholic cemetery, even though she's not Catholic. And this is all kind of glossed over, and then there's the business about why there's only one plot available in the family plot. And it's at this funeral that there's a moment where Jody, the sister, takes Stuart's hand as they're burying their aunt. And there's a moment where Stuart says, you know, I felt like it was on my shoulders to save all these members of my family. But that's not what happens at this point in the movie. Instead, he goes home and sleeps for six days. You know, before she takes his hand, it's revealed that his sister ate seven pounds of ham. (laughs) Right. I don't even, I, I don't know if that's to be applauded or addressed immediately by medical personnel. I mean, that is, look, that is a lot of pork. That is a, think about that. Seven pounds of ham? Damn, that's a lot of ham. All right, let me let me tell you another quick story about ham. <laughs> and not about me consuming seven pounds. But uh, at, we have a, a Secret Santa thing at work, you know, where you, you, you know how Secret <laughs> Santa shit works. I don't have to explain the rules. 
And one of the things I ended up getting was uh, this, it was like a $50 <laughs> gift certificate for ham. And for listeners at home, just to describe the uh, increasingly sad nature of my existence, I live alone. $50 of ham, the only thing I could possibly do with it is to build a ham fort. (laughs) So coincidentally, this same day, you know, this is around Christmas, and there is coincidentally... Uh, a, a donation box that has been set up at the front counter of my workplace for a family of, it was uh, friends of someone who worked there whose house had literally burned down the night before. And so my, did you build him a ham fort to live in? No, but my sociopathic response is I don't want all this fucking ham. I don't want to throw it away. Oh, right. There's that box up front that's going to them people what got their house burned down. So I shove it in this donation box, and it immediately just strikes from my consciousness. I totally forget about the ham. Until about four hours later that day, the secretary who worked there pulls me aside and says, I saw what you did. With that ham gift certificate. And I just want to say that is one of the nicest, most generous things I've seen someone do in some time. To which I reply, it's the least I could do. <laughs> Wait a minute. You put the certificate in the box? Uh-huh. Because as you told the story, I envisioned you just jamming like what was now $47 worth of ham into the box. No, I just I wasn't <laughs> like, going to go through the motions of getting ham. I mean, that was the whole point is was this thing was worthless to me. I was looking for the easiest most convenient way to dump this gift, gift certificate without looking like an asshole to my boss by just throwing it in the trash. <laughs> and instead, I'm so glad you didn't just I'm so glad you didn't just jam ham in the box like peeling it off piece by piece and then stuffing it in there again, going back to trading places, the way (laughs) Aykroyd slides a piece of ham under his woolly synthetic beard for, for an afternoon snack. No, no, I did not have like pockets stuffed with ham that (laughs) I was, I was envisioning (laughs) trying to (laughs) you coming, you coming to work all all puffy and bloated, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. Hey, what's over there? Stuff ham, stuff ham. No, no. This all happened within the space of about five hours of me getting ham that I didn't want, getting rid of the gift certificate, forgetting I had ever gotten it, and then taking full credit for generosity as a result. As Bruce McCullough once said, it's fucking good ham. <laughs> it's having good ham, Mom. So Stuart goes home and he he sleeps for six days. This is the point where I I actually made the note, this would make a better Kenneth Lonergan comedy drama, a la You Can Count on Me, than a goofy comedy starring Stuart Smalley. Like, if Mark Ruffalo was Stuart Smalley in this, then we got a real movie. I was thinking it should have been done with Stuart Smalley behind a desk, a la Swimming to Cambodia. 
Oh, that would be pretty good. That guy committed suicide. Um, Lori and did. <laughs> Lori and Julia, who are Lori was the secretary that we saw earlier, who it turned out had a compulsive gambler uh, for a boyfriend. And Stuart was consoling her at the time. So she and Julia show up at his door. And Lori has now quit her job because Roz, remember her, the the boss that uh, gave Stuart the business? Because she's abusive. And so she slips this card beneath his door, which is a letter of thanks for the show Daily Affirmations. And he ultimately, he opens the door and his support group comes filtering in. And this is sort of Stuart recovering from seeing his family and being stressed out and all that stuff. And then he decides, I'm going to make myself better. You know, the only way that I can, I can help my family or anyone else is to, to make myself well. And so he decides he's going to go for his daily walk slash jog. Those aren't two separate activities. It is just a weird way of walking slightly faster than normal. And that he's going to continue to go to his support groups and that he... Wait, wait, wait. He, wait. When he does his walk slash jog, he does it to Ethel Merman's Everything's Coming Up Roses. Which I kind of unironically like that song. Just, But when he comes out and you see him and, you know, his outfit and the way he just sort of like dances down the stairs from one foot to the other. You know what I mean? He kind of looks like a... Like the way deer prance through the woods, you know, and you get the, you'll be swell, <laughs> you know, and I'm watching this and I'm like, is he gay? Yeah. I mean, he didn't choose this song. Somebody else did in the movie. So, nah, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, but I just wonder, look at him. Boy, he's, he's an interesting little fella. The, and that, it's something I thought about when I was watching this movie. Like if I knew Stuart Smalley. I think I would really get along with him, you know, like he would be one of those guys that was a little, a little too touchy feely, a little too, and I don't mean, you know, physically aggressive. I just mean a sure. little too ov- overly sensitive and, and that kind of thing. But he and I share core values, which is, I, you know, I do believe in, in uh, the idea of psychotherapy and, and trying to improve yourself. I also don't give a shit about sports. I do. I do like that Ethel Merman song. Um, and also probably be trying to angle in uh, on Julia by being real good pals with Stuart. And because I think Laura San Giancomo is a pretty lady. I like her eyebrows. They look like caterpillars. They're very big and she's got uh, the kind of gap in her teeth. She looks... <laughs> I, I say this knowing full well this isn't true. She looks gettable. You know? She's <laughs> she's really really attractive, but not like Grace Kelly ethereal attractive, where it's like just looking at her makes you feel ugly and ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I look at Laura San Giacomo and I'm like, I bet she'd have a beer with me. She's not the lady from Waterworld, is she? That's that other lady who looks like her. Yeah, right? I can't think of her name at the moment. Jean Triplehorn, maybe. That sounds right. Let's go with that. Wait, no, that was Edith Bunker. No, that's uh, Jean Smart. No, that's Kelly? one of the designing women. Jean Stapleton. Jean Jean the Dancing Machine. That's right. Jean, mean Jean Okerlund. 
uh, was Edith Bunker. So he gets a call, Stuart, I mean, gets a call from Jody who says that Donnie is suing her over uh, Aunt Paula's will. And the details she gives of this, it for me was akin to hearing about the trade wars in those Star Wars prequels. There was just so much detail that I did not give a shit about. It was like, I'm being sued because of aunt, the aunt's house and an easement. And there were payments from the neighbor, which infringed on the property because of the, the, the laws and in, in within the County of the city. I was just like, just, I, I don't give a shit, you know, just, I need you to come back and take care of family business. Right. And so we move from this conversation to Stuart back at his restaurant, the Greyhound bus. No, 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 not yet. Because because he tells Julia at his restaurant job about this, and this is where he explains Jody is the executor of the estate, and there's a dispute with a neighbor over the house of his Aunt Paula being slightly on the neighbor's property. And it, it you're right, though. I mean, who could give a shit about any of this real estate stuff? But... I point this out because this is the first and second legitimate laughs of the movie that I get when Stewart says uh, he doesn't know any of the details because, as he puts it, Jody is not what you would call, what's the word for it, smart. That You're right. There are two jokes in this movie that made me laugh out loud, and that was the one of them. The second one, you and I both know what it yes. is. But it, it, I agree with you. It was, it was the setup the delivery and it was one of those jokes that as soon as you know what he's going to say he says it and it just i mean it is a three point landing of like like damn that was that was really funny yeah yeah and and that's kind of what's frustrating about this is because that ought, that should be the tone of comedy in the movie of stewart commenting on his family and as weird and goofy as stewart is the comedy should be strangely not Stuart himself, but him dealing with his family. And instead he's too often the target of the joke. And I don't, I don't think that's where the jokes land. Um, the other, th- the other bit I like in this scene actually comes from the, uh, the SNL sketches, but it's him saying, you know, I sh- I should, just not go maybe i should go and he stops and he says oh i'm shooting all over myself and i think that's kind of a funny pun <laughs> i like Stuart small i do too so now so now we get back on a greyhound bus and we have um, yet another flashback to Stuart as a child and in this one you see him and one thing we really touch on is that when Stuart was younger even into his adulthood um, he's a he's a fat kid, and we get to see a photograph of him as a fat adult. Secretly, I wanted to see Franken in a fat suit. Sure. You know, just waddling around doing something, but we don't get to see that. But we see him as a fat kid, and there's this uh, contest on TV where um, Ajax has a mascot, you know, for their product. It's the White Knight, and they want people to submit their names for uh, the night. And so Stuart submits the name Sir Clean-A-Lot, which is a very good name. And his dad makes fun of him and says, maybe they should call him Sir Eats a lot because this kid's fat and that's just mean. And then again, to your point earlier, the mom's like, eh, you'll probably just lose, which he does lose the contest because when they announce it on TV, it's given uh, the winner has submitted the name Sir Lancelot, 
which is a stupid name compared to Sir Cleanola. Right, but his family clearly delights in the fact that he has lost. Especially the dad and the brother. Yes, they are eating this up. Uh, no, no pun intended from Sir Eats a Lot, which is something that uh, I also think is uh, something that as a father, if you call your son Sir Eats a Lot, you're basically saying, no, no, I want you to keep being fat. <laughs> so our next scene, uh, Donnie and Stuart are playing pool and, you know, some towny bar and uh this is where we find out that they <laughs> jody foster's in the corner the- playing pinball <laughs> <laughs> they leave the movie oh, no. just in time for that scene to take place so we find out that the family owes three grand to this neighbor to settle this easement and um donnie says he wants Stuart to go over and to talk to this guy to get the money down and then these two other dudes come over and start talking to Stuart. And it seems like they know the older brother. And then it's a, it's kind of a fat guy who's a character actor. I didn't bother to look his name up. And there's a tall, skinny guy. And the fat guy kind of winks at Stuart. And then the two dudes get real aggressive about wanting Stuart to have a beer with them. And then one of them says, drink a beer with us or I'm going to drink it and spit it down your throat. And I felt like I was about to see a hate crime for the second time. In as many movies as I'm watching a character, again, of questionable sexuality, be aggressively accosted by strangers, again, wearing plaid shirts. And, you know, maybe this wasn't going to be full on boys don't cry, but seeing how this movie isn't afraid to shift from comedic tones to much more heavier ones, I was like, hell man, anything's possible in this movie. Yeah, and I'd like to point out that the actor in question here is uh, a guy named Walter Olkowitz. Notable for me because he also played Jacques Renault in Twin Peaks, where he does one of the most outrageously bad like French-Canadian accents I've ever heard, but it's also what makes it kind of wonderful. So, uh... <laughs> How do you have a name like Jacques Renault and you can't do a French-Canadian accent? Well, that's not his real name, Chad. That was the name of his character. The real guy's name is Walter Olkowitz, who, by the way, sounds exactly uh, like a guy who would have a shitty French-Canadian accent. Well, clearly, I am not paying attention. Speaking of, what movie are we doing? Uh, Oh, yeah, right. There's a really... This is kind of the first time we see that Donnie actually gives a little bit of a shit about Stuart, where he stands up for him when the, the townies are like, drink this beer, go on, drink it. And... (laughs) Uh, and donnie is like don't drink it and you know gets into a a bit of a spat and all that um but it well the scene the scene ends with donnie uh hitting one of the guys in the dick with his pool cue you know and (laughs) that's pretty and it's a good shot not i mean not the shot to the balls although that's true too but the the cut from Donnie to the him using the pool cue to hit the guy in the balls and then the wider shot of all of them. It was one of those moments of like, man, Harold Ramis can direct the shit out of a movie when he wants to. I just wish any of this worked. And uh, to to that end. So at home after after their adventure in the bar, Donnie, of course, gets high on the couch right next to dad, who is with his with his father. 
Yeah, with his father sitting, what, two feet and one inches away. He's sitting there smoking a joint. Dad is passed out in his lazy boy chair with about a quarter of a one five liter bottle of whiskey or some other brown liquor on this small, you know, table stand. It's just like, how is this happening in a house? Like I went to a lot of sketchy houses where, you know, kids were living with their parents at various levels of teenage and adulthood, but to sit there and just be laying on your couch, getting high with your dad, who's just ripped drunk. Like you're really moving into a realm. That's like, this is, you know, <laughs> this is not normal. At least it wasn't normal for me. I, I got high with my mom once. Did you? I did. Wait, your real mom? Yeah, your my real yeah, mom. My real mom. mom. Oh, okay. That that makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, and it, but immediately it was like this is the grossest thing I've ever done, <laughs> and it never happened again. We then see Stuart, and he's on the phone with Julia, and then his mom picks up the phone and she starts dialing it. And I think this is meant to be a joke, but in her defense, there are only two people that normally live in this house, house, and one of them's fucked up on weed, and the other one's all you know jacked up on booze. You know, or it's basically Tuesday night and she should be able to use her phone whenever the hell she wants. There's kind of that. Are you on the phone, honey? Yes, mom. What are you doing? Okay. And, you know, they kind of get off the phone. And then the next day, Stuart goes to this neighbor to discuss this easement issue and it goes badly. And um, it turns out that the guy now wants $10,000. And when Stuart delivers this news to his family, they all freak out and start having their own personal selfish meltdown of how he he bungled this from uh, a $3,000 debt to now a $10,000 debt. But they have an idea of how they can fix this because they, I think it's the, the father who says, wait a second, are you telling me that you talked to him alone? And Stuart's like, yes, I did. And his father's like, well, that's great. All you got to do is say it never happened. And Stuart has a crisis of conscience and says, I won't, I, the way he puts it is, I won't deny the truth. He won't choose family over the truth. And and good for you, Stuart. Yeah, especially considering your family is just chock full of shitty people. And Donnie then says, oh, you want some truth? <laughs> I am in a world of shit, Stuart. And <laughs> grabs photocopied pages that he has taken from Stuart's journal that are full of Stuart's inner thoughts about his family including what a drunk his father is and Donnie being a loser and Jody being overweight and the mother being so high strung. And it's kind of notable in the, in the previous scene where Donnie's getting high dad's drinking that the mother is also cooking, that they're all three engaged in the behaviors that he associates with their, their problems. Stuart says that he hates his mom. And like Donnie reads that out loud. That's kind of shitty. What Stuart should have done is he should have had one of those. It's Pat brand journal computers that you can password protect that can only be hacked by sexually confused sociopaths uh, and ventriloquist dummies. Those are expensive though. Stewart doesn't have that kind of money. <laughs> he's got money. I mean, he's on a Greyhound bus for Christ's sake. There's no way he's got, you know, ventriloquist lock money. Um, that ain't happening. But Donnie says ultimately that they're going to see Stewart in court. But, but one thing I want to say is like that scene where he he hands all he hands out the pages of the journal. This scene should be more dramatic, and it isn't because it ends with Stewart saying you know something to the effect of, "Well, um, I need to go pack some things," and he just sort of you know 
scampers off, meaning, you know, exit stage left. I'm going to leave the house now because I'm embarrassed. And again, you could argue that that is reflective of how his character deals with uncomfortable situations. But but when this movie veers into heavier territory, it just seems like it doesn't really know how to, to get its arms around it. To that end, Stuart leaves town again. Don't worry, he'll be back because oh, why wouldn't we? And Stuart is there at this fireworks display with Julia. And uh, assumedly it's the 4th of July, although the movie doesn't make a point to say that. It just, we glean from the fact that he is declaring emotional independence from his family. And he's trying to get Julia to do the same thing. Like, it can be anything. Just, you know, declare something, you know, be independent of something. And Julia just won't do it. So they go get some coffee, and this is where Julia tells this incredibly heavy story about how she was the product of an affair that her mother had, and she never, she hadn't met her real father for years and years, and she sends him a letter, and the, you know, the father that she doesn't know says, hey, I'm going to come through Chicago on business and why don't we have dinner? So they do, and they have a good time. And she says, you know, I, it, it's really a nice moment where she says, I didn't, I, I didn't know what he looked like. So I didn't know who I was looking for when I, when I went to meet him. But then I see this guy walk in, and he's got my eyes. And I knew that was my father. And they have this really nice dinner together. And... Then, as they're leaving the restaurant, she says uh, he makes a pass at her in the parking lot. And what did you think she meant by that? Uh, maybe went in for a kiss, I, I think. Uh, like an inappropriate think, like, kiss. Do you think, or maybe he like he touched her in a very sexual way? or Yeah, or something. Or just you, unzipped his pants and was like, ever seen one of these before? Do you think, assuming it didn't go that far, do you think there's any chance that this could have been misinterpreted by, you know, her character? Like maybe he leaned in for a kiss goodbye and she thought that he was, you know, a weirdo. Or maybe he was just kind of this perverted weirdo. Yeah. You know, what? The, the more I think about it, maybe, maybe, hold on, hear me out. Here's a the theory. Maybe he has always wanted to fuck one of his own kids. And this was the closest thing that he could get to fulfilling like a lifelong dream of incestuous pedophilia. And if that's the case, she dodged a bullet not being raised by this fictitious pervert. Well, I mean, you're not wrong, but also I think there's that element of, I don't, I, (laughs) this girl is at least 18, 19 years, my junior And I'm an older guy now, and what if I could get it wet with this young, hot girl? And, I mean, yeah, she might be my daughter, but only on paper, am I right? Like, I don't really know her. And I don't think any of that is healthy, don't get me wrong. But, I, yeah, I I think there are guys out there that go down that, that path. I mean, for God's sake, look at the things that Donald Trump has said about his daughter... (laughs) in in not in a private parking lot moment but in goddamn public and you tell me that you know it is unthinkable 
that there's going to be this guy. I think they do exist, and one of them happens to be president. Why do you think this scene is in this movie? Do you feel like we really need this character's backstory? I mean, that it, it that it adds a lot to her relationship with Stuart? No. Uh, well, yes and no. Because this ends with a, a, a moment that should be kind of creepier than it is, especially coming off the heels of this revelation of, of what happened with her biological father. But he says, look, I'll be your dad when you're not being my mom. You know, saying it ultimately, it's a weird way to phrase that, but I, at the, at the heart of it, it's the idea that, Hey, we'll support each other, but there's kind of a nice moment where, uh, I found this to be strangely touching where he hugs her and he just says, I'm so proud of you. You are such a wonderful person. I couldn't ask for a better daughter. Like saying all the things that this character has always wanted to hear. And it's one of those moments in the movie where I was like, son of a bitch, this movie's kind of tugging at my heartstrings and it shouldn't because none of this kind of works together. And yet there are moments like, you know, the moment uh, we were talking about of him talking about his sister, you know, she's not what you would call smart, being a really great comedic moment. And then you have this moment that is this great, for me at least, this great emotional moment but they're just—it's just too disjointed. The whole thing is too clunky. It's like uh, them them Toy Story toys that Sid gets his hands on when he's plugging like Erector sets onto Barbie dolls and shit. Where it's like, well, these things don't move right, and it just comes off feeling a little weird and 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 wrong. Yeah, this was—I agree with you. This was a really sweet moment, and and again, I think that it was him saying things to her that she really needed to hear. And I also looked at it as Stuart of saying things to her that he arguably, you know, really wants to hear oh, sure. from someone else. Yeah. And I'll, I also want to say that this was really the moment in the movie where I changed my opinion about Stuart being gay earlier. I mentioned that I just sort of saw him as being overly sensitive in this scene. I was like, you know what? I want him to be gay because of this scene. Cause if he's straight and he's interested in this girl and now he's talking about you be my mom and I'll be your dad. No, thank you. Nope. I'm not, no, 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 like, I'm good. Check, please. <laughs> we we got to get out of here. So, mm-hmm. um, mm. um, anyway, I, I, I pivoted a little bit at that point. So, so, in this scene, though, Julia suggests, like, the, the plot uh, uh, part of this scene is that she suggests that Stuart send a tape of the canceled Daily Affirmation show to this new cable network called the Health Cable Network. And so Stuart goes back to his old job, you know, presumably the um, public access station. The public access station in this is Chicago Public Access Corporation, which is CPAC. Mm -hmm. Is that a joke? Maybe, but I mean, potentially it could be because even at this point, you know, uh, Al Franken is certainly politically active mm. and politically aware and he could be using this as oh this is this corrupt kind of institution sort of thing maybe it seems a long way to go for a pretty inside joke but i also wouldn't put yeah. it past al franken he goes inside and the new receptionist Fuck. is played by your favorite androgynous actress and mime julia sweeney i don't know why 
Anyway, she has a copy of the tape of his show, but it's going to cost 400 bucks, which as we mentioned earlier, he's got Greyhound money. He doesn't have $400 copy of your show money. And uh, Roz wants to talk to him uh, before he gets the tape. And um, Julia Sweeney, uh, our receptionist, says she's going to go on a lunch break. And for some reason, Stuart just grabs the tape and then he runs down the street in this broadcast news gauntlet um, where his friend works. And, you know, initially we see her and she's talking about like bond maturity. And I'm like, oh, okay, so she's a financial analyst or an investment banker or something. But then Stuart shows up, he bangs on the window and he comes in and and it sort of admits the inappropriateness of him being there. Then they run down to this edit bay where this guy offers to make a copy of the tape. And then Stuart runs back to CPAC and, um, you know, now Julia Sweeney's there and she's eating her lunch and he's out of breath. And then Roz comes out and she's donning this blonde wig and she's had a makeover from this guy pitching a makeover show. And then Roz tells Stuart that his copying of the tape is a federal offense. She then fires Julia Sweeney and then Stuart calls her a sadistic hairless vagina. Sounds hot. That seems like one of those terms, like, you know, when you look at the most search porn terms by state and then you look at something weird like Utah, like that's your top (laughs) search term where you're just like, you're like, really? And, and, and again, and and you, and you know, you always have those certain states you look at, you know, it's always like Florida, Utah, you know, California, which is always like, well, that's kind of a normal thing, you know? And then you, you find a couple of other wild cards. Like you're like, I drove through Arkansas once. That was odd. Ooh. Really? Huh. Distended (laughs) nipples? Really, Massachusetts? (laughs) Um, Another kind of interesting point about the the scene where he busts into the meeting where Julia is holding sway for me is um, one of the actors in the scene, the, the kind of bespectacled gentleman that she is talking to, is Sam Raimi's brother, Ted Raimi. How'd that happen? Uh, well, Mr. and Mrs. Raimi had not one child, but more than one. One of them was Sam Raimi, director of Evil Dead and Spider-Man. The other was Ted Raimi, who appears in Evil Dead and Spider-Man. I also heard that he has a small background appearance in Stuart Saves His Family. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And so Stuart, after this uh, being threatened... Uh, with being sued and potentially going to jail, heads immediately back to bed. And there is a lawyer outside the door saying, look, there is no way they're going to sue you over the, it's too small an amount. Nobody gives a shit. And Julia is there as well. And she says, well, the health network loved the tape and they want to do five shows a week. And not only that, they're going to pay you to do daily affirmations. Again, in a different movie, like if we were just doing the movie about daily affirmations, a la Wayne's World, that works. But at the end of the day, this only matters a little bit, really. And he goes to the studio where he learns that he has four hours to do 20 shows, but all of his sponsors and friends have shown up to help brainstorm ideas and the first show he does is Mia C, a.k.a. Julia Sweeney, a.k.a. It's Pat. 
being on the show, uh, talking up, you know, the, the, the actual idea of daily affirmations and how they can help. And, um, Mia has kind of a breakdown. It's, it's actually a pretty funny scene or actually I think Al Franken's reactions to it are funny of like, I, I think this is good as she's beating, uh, a, a chair with a pillow saying, you know, you're not my mother kind of stuff. And he looks slightly frightened, but also optimistic, which is a hard thing to pull off. And I, but I think it works. Well, the network, it turns out loves his show. And what I think is weird is that his friend Julia helps him negotiate more money. And I'm just like, what is her job? I'm like, she's a sponsor. She's a, a sex abuse survivor. She can get you videotape. She can help you invest your money. She can, you know, negotiate. She's, she's I'm like, what do you do? She's essentially Debbie Harry from Videodrome. <laughs> Got her fingers in a little bit of everything. After life starts turning up for uh, for Stewart, some woman gives him a subpoena, which uh, it turns out his family needs him to return back to his hometown to appear in court because the family is now being sued for $20,000 because the old man who was the neighbor is now dead and his kid is suing him for twice as much money. Again, more complexity to this Star Wars trade war federation nonsense that you don't care about. Stuart goes back um, to court and he refuses to lie. And he says that he's responsible for the deal falling apart and things go badly. And in the end, they only end up having to pay $10,000 because who cares? And then the dad and Donnie end up having to do a hundred hours of community service for perjury. So again, in addition to punching that cop at the funeral earlier, they've now been found guilty of lying under oath in a court of law. Yeah. And it's because Stuart, as soon as, because he was conflicted, right? His family wants him to lie because if all he has to do is say that this conversation with the, the dead neighbor never happened and everybody gets away with this scot-free and he's on the fence. But at the moment someone is asking him to, you know, testify on the Bible and swear that he's telling the truth, he confesses everything without being prompted. Which involves the uh, the father trying to come over the rail of of the court, which I thought was pretty funny. Of like, I'm gonna kill my son. So we cut back to daily affirmations where he's on the show, basically giving the epilogue on all this, uh, which you described, and then he sends Julia off to work, uh, and then gets another call from Jody who says that their father has shot Donnie, which is the other big laugh of the movie where Stuart puts his head in his hand and says, all right, Jody, I wouldn't normally ever say this, but how fast can you get to a pound cake? It's really funny. It's a really good line. And so we head back home with Stuart to Minnesota and we get a flashback of what has happened there which is Donnie and and the dad were out deer hunting and drinking, of course. They ran nothing new there. <laughs> right. I mean, as far as I understand it, I have I don't think I've ever been hunting, at least not in my memory. And if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna be drinking, I gotta have my gun. And vice versa, if I got my gun, you know I'm gonna be drinking. Am I right up top? And they <laughs> 
They've run out of beer, so Donnie is sent off to get more beer, but the father is so fucked up that he is just out of it. So when Donnie is returning with a fresh 12, uh, he thinks that Don- 24, it, it's, it was a case. Was it a case? 24. It's a case. Of I beer. thought it was, it's I thought it was a 12 of bottles, but you know, Mm-mm. it's a case. I've got many years of bartending. on me. It's a case of beer. <laughs> All right. So, uh, he, the, the father believes that Donnie coming through the brush with the case of beer is a deer. And so he shoots him in the side. <laughs> he shoots it from a hundred feet away the way it's framed up and he's wearing the orange vest i mean the dad is just like just blotto you know what i mean he's just like cross-eyed with the gun and just like kablamo right it, it, it's the distance that aaron burr and alexander hamilton were from each other <laughs> when poor alexander hamilton got it so Stuart rushes back home when he gets to the hospital. Mom, his mother is kind of standoffish with him. Uh, oh, he said he hated her. Well, of course, you know? of course. But who yeah. who hasn't said that at one time or another? By the way, quick side note. If you want to see the reverse of this, where a mother tees off on a child in a way that is just weenie shriveling... Tony Collette has a speech in the movie Hereditary with her son that is the most heinous shit I have ever heard a parent say to a child. So, you know, something to look forward to. And <laughs> it's a grim movie, folks. And uh, the father comes out of the hospital room and he just passes by Stewart and says, I'll be in the car. And... Stuart stops his mother and says, uh, like, hey, are you going to go home and do some cooking? And she kind of loses her shit for a second and says, do you think I like that? Do you think I'm miserable taking care of everyone all the time? And and it's kind of bemoaning her lot in life. I like this scene with the mom because up until this moment in the movie, she's been a she's been this two dimensional character. You know, like you, you know, you've kind of seen that before that she's like you said, she just sort of this is my lot in life and how I deal with it is by cooking food. But in this, I think we've all had those moments, whether it was with um, a family member or a friend or just someone that you've known. And there is a moment of honest vulnerability and openness. And when she says this, like, do you not understand what's going on? Like, let me show you the world through my eyes and what it's like. And, and I don't, it sort of gave a richness to her character above and beyond the everything's fine. Everything's okay. You know, have a little snack. We're going to be all right. You know, that passive aggressive of you're probably going to fail even with you try. So don't even bother. But I, I like this. Uh, yeah, you know, I it, do too. It, I don't know, it made her feel more real to me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot I like about the end of this movie. It's just never funny and it's never you know it goes back to that chronicle thing it the dramatic stuff would land so much better in a different movie and the comedic stuff would land better if that's if if it were a pure comedy one of the reviews i read of this film said that the people that will go to see it won't connect with it and the people who would really connect with this film won't go see it yeah yeah, I think that's right. And uh, and when we get to the end, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more, I think. But um, so Stuart goes into Donnie's room, who has uh, s- sobered up at this point, thank goodness. 
And Stuart uh, has brought him some magazines and a flower for his room, which is a very un gift. But Donnie then says, you know, when Dad was in here, he tried to sneak me half a pint. And... He says it all. He says it all condescending, like like how dare he? But you know, earlier Donnie looks at the dad's like, "Hey, dad, why don't we get all fucked up and go change out the, the storm windows on the roof?" Right. I, like, I, that was a dig at his father as well. But yes, I. But that's the thing, right? And like, and Donnie says, like, I needed this moment. I needed something to scare the shit out of me, and that this was that thing. You know, that he had been just drowning himself in booze and, and pot and ignoring what was going on in his life. And this was the moment that woke him up and said, like, you know, one way or the other, this kind of behavior is going to kill me if it's my father shooting me, mistaking me for a deer or something else. And there's, again, a kind of a nice moment where he says to Stuart, like, I was always mean to you when we were kids because uh, I was jealous of you. And that he acknowledges that Stuart is kind of the strongest one of them because he's the only one who has ever been honest in any of the relationships between these family members. He's the only one to call them out on their shit, even though he's done it in a very passive aggressive way in the journal. But even besides that, you know, he's, he's the one who's like, look, you guys all have problems and it's affected me deeply. And I'm spending my life trying to pick up the pieces of that. I think this is a really sweet moment and it, and I think it would have worked really well in another movie. <laughs> right. I, I think that the example that, that you and I discussed, you know, very briefly was that, you know, it would be like watching uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse where Cowboy Curtis says he has HIV, you know, and you're just like, what, what are we doing here? The, the blending of the ridiculousness of Stuart as a character and the, the comedy combined with the the gravity of this situation it is difficult to pull off. And, and the more I thought about it again, you and I you know, briefly touched on this um, in an earlier conversation that the only other form of entertainment that I know of that really pulled this off or, or pulls it off regularly is Sesame street where you have these ridiculous puppets but at the same time, they're able to deal with heavy issues such as the death of a character or a character having, you know, autism or a character, you know, that's that has um, terminal illnesses. And it's just like this is interesting of how you're able to pivot from comedy and tragedy. I also think about some of the great sitcoms that have been really um, adept at being able to turn very sharply into the dramatic from the comedic, you know, shows like cheers did this really well. Mash was one that could do it really well. The Andy Griffith show certainly had moments where it took the characters that were, you know, walking cartoons, but could really find a way to anchor them in very poignant moments that could bring a tear to your eye or a lump in your throat. And in this movie, all of the ingredients are there. They just haven't been put together in the right way. Yeah. And like when you mention that, I think of that episode of All in the Family where uh, Archie Bunker kind of confesses to Meathead 
that his father beat him. And, and yeah. if there's a moment where Archie is being very defensive about his father and Rob Reiner's character, a.k.a. Meathead, has this look on his face where he suddenly has such a, a much deeper understanding of where that character comes from. Um, not just uh, the literal sense of what his childhood was like, but also how it shaped his worldview. And yeah, you're right. Like all of that stuff is in this movie. It just doesn't gel quite right. It's like, it's like a jello mold that was, was taken out of the fridge a little too soon and it's all runny and goopy and gross. Um, yes, that is the more elegant analogy at any rate. <laughs> so, so this leads, yeah, this leads uh, Donnie to say they got to do something about their dad, I guess, because we're all going to, you know, kind of focus our attention on someone else rather than looking inward. And it leads us to an intervention for the father. And this is a full on intervention. And again, this is decades before the the exploitive TV show intervention where we get to, you know, see what this is like of watching raw human behavior, um, you know take place in real time. And it's the whole scene. There's the facilitator um, talking about, you know, how we're going to bring in this 70 year old man, uh, you know, and if he doesn't agree to go to a facility at the end of this intervention, there are going to be dire repercussions. Um, he, in, at one point when he's talking to the whole family before they bring in pops, he asks, you know, does he drink in the morning? And they're all like, oh, yes. And then he says, does he drink alone? And all I could hear was Homer Simpson asking, does the Lord count as a person? <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> the other one was, uh, I think it was Greg Gerald. No, it was. Um, Not a tell. Yeah, David Tell. Okay. But one of the things I, I thought about was David Tell saying, they say you should never drink alone. But if you drink enough, you'll never be alone. <laughs> the mom says if she does this and it doesn't work the dad's gonna make her life hell and then the facilitator asks how's your life now and the mom kind of breaks down in tears and when this happened i was just like what is going on in this movie like you know earlier we had you know stewart doing his jock wog or his stewart doing his walk jog to ethel merman and then now we're dealing with like some really, really heavy stuff for this family. Yeah, and uh, you know, I have been in in similar conversations, like not an honest to goodness intervention, but I have been in those familial moments where it's like, all right, we're about to get raw with each other, and there is like there's one moment of bonding before we get to the intervention proper. Where Donnie and Stuart, like, after the mother is being asked, like, what are you willing to do? And she says, well, I suppose I'll tell him if if he doesn't stop drinking, then I'll be forced to take less care of him and pursue my own interests. And it kind of cracks Donnie and Stuart up. And it's not, it's not a terribly funny moment. But the thing I like about it is it felt genuine in the sense that you have those moments with a relative or, you know, in this case, a brother where it's just a thing that strikes you both as being funny. And it's a thing that, you know, after it happens, like this is just going to be an inside joke for us from now on. And it, it's kind of nice. And there's, as they're, they're approaching the actual intervention, which again, only came up 10 minutes ago in this movie and shouldn't be as big a deal as it is, but it's kind of the, the apex of the film where 
Stewart is thinking back on a trip they had to Hollywood where they did uh, Disneyland and all that stuff. But they were supposed to tour Hollywood, but the father got so drunk the night before that he wakes up late and they're about to miss their flight. So he has to rush and show them all the uh, sort of sightseeing uh, bits of Hollywood. And he had promised the daughter Jody that they would get a picture of her in front of the Hollywood sign. So he drives like a madman up the winding hill, uh, Hollywood Hills um, streets and gets the kids to stand in the middle of the road so he can take a picture of them in front of the Hollywood sign. But cars keep coming down. And because I didn't, you know, you and I, I think, have both been to L.A. I don't I don't know that most listeners have. But th- some of those streets up in the hills are just so curvy and, and weird that you can't see around corners. And there are these real sharp turns, kind of like a snake winding down the hills. And that's the road we're dealing with here where, um, you know, cars are turning these corners quickly and the kids are screaming and running off the road. And as soon as they do that, the father's calling them back out. He's like, no, don't be cowards. Come on. We got to get this picture. And the mother is trying to tell them to stay away. And this all ends with Stuart not getting out of the road quickly enough. And he gets hit by a car and the punchline of the scene, which is kind of played for laughs, but it's this really tragic moment where, you know, it's Stuart having this memory that he always remembered this trip as being fairly good, but now there's this additional layer of this thing he is now remembering about this trip that he had in such high regard, where he had been hit by a car and it didn't hurt him because he was so fat at the time. And it's just like, man, this this joke isn't funny here. You know, like we're coming off the back of getting ready to do this intervention and you're in making the point that yes, there are these moments that you will remember as, as the years go by that kind of taint even some of the good memories. And the picture of him that his dad snaps of him getting hit by the car is hilarious. It is, it is, it is so funny because it looks like Stuart as this little fat kid, he's like in the air upside down at a 45 degree angle. I mean, it almost looks photoshopped. It's badly. It's the pose that Goldie Hawn has on the overboard poster. <laughs> it's, but it's the thing of it is, is that the picture is ridiculous. And this whole scene disrupts the flow of we've got to have an intervention for your dad. He shot the brother. Are you all willing to walk away? You know, moms, are you going to, you know, stick to this? Yes, yes, yes. Then we just go on this weird detour that ends with, you know, fat Stewart flip flopping through the air, like somebody tossed a cat, you know, across the street. I found this, this, this scene to be, inappropriate it felt like it should have happened earlier in the film um and just yeah it it, it didn't really work yeah it, it it would be like if the scene with walking spinning the chamber in the deer hunter as somebody yells like boy hi at him every time he pulled the trigger and it didn't go off you heard a meow, meow. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we get back to our intervention. And then Donnie brings the dad in. And when the dad walks in, he just looks, he looks like a confused old man, you know? And then I liked this part that he blames Stuart and he refers to him as this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 there's a lot I like about this scene. I think D'Onofrio, this is his best scene in the movie where he tells the story. Again, one that hits a little too close to home for this guy. Um, where he says like, Hey, we moved to a new town and we were throwing a party and it was, I was meeting new kids and you got so drunk, you fell down the stairs. And how do you think that made me feel? And you know, the, the father's just like, man, well, I don't remember that. The daughter tells the dad, um, that he was drunk at all of her weddings and the dad refers to her three ex-husbands as dopey, drunky, and shithead. <laughs> That's pretty good. And then he says, maybe you could keep a man if you weren't so damn fat. <laughs> yeah. It's just, the whole thing is so incredibly abrasive that it's, I don't know, it's both funny and sad. But as I watched it, I, I really found myself laughing inappropriately and and as i was laughing i was like i don't think i'm supposed to be laughing at this but wait this is a comedy and i'll tell you what it really reminded me of i just, I just thought of this you remember on uh facts of life when blair had that cousin who had cerebral palsy or cerebral palsy mm -hmm. and she was a stand-up comedian and as a kid you know, my parents were like, you shouldn't laugh at people with disabilities. And it's like, oh, okay. All right, mom. All right, dad. I, I don't laugh at people with disabilities. And then you have this woman who comes out and her body is contorted because of her condition. And she's telling jokes about her condition. And my head's like, wait, these are funny, but I shouldn't laugh. I don't know what to do. That's how I felt about this movie of like, this isn't funny, but yet you're telling jokes. Stop making me laugh at this because when Stuart gets in there and he tells, you know, his daddy's like, Hey, look, dad, I lost 127 pounds and you've never said anything, you know? And then the dad immediately starts mocking Stuart, you know, and he's like, come over here and give your alcoholic dad a big hug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's where he calls him Liberace. And I was just like, this is really funny. But I'm not supposed to be laughing at this, am I? Like, this should be a scene where the dad is sort of like walking in his own footsteps of being this abrasive asshole. And it shouldn't be funny. Like, even now I'm thinking of, you remember in Miller's Crossing when uh, John Turturro does the scene where he begs for his life and it's so sincere. And at the end of the film, he begs for its life. And it's the same exact dialogue with a completely hollow performance. Like, I feel like that these, these moments of mockery shouldn't have been as funny. They should have been more tragically pathetic of a drunk old man. Right. Like it, it's him backed in a corner instead of seemingly in charge of the situation. But, but that's kind of how this scene wraps up is that he, the counselor says, look, if you don't want to get treatment, you're going to go to jail. And the, and he says, I'd rather go to jail and deal with all this shit. And, the, <laughs> and then the most ominous thing that he says in the entire movie <laughs> is, I know what's coming. He's like, he looks at the mother and is like, let's go. I'll deal with you when we get home. And you're like, holy shit. 
she is at at <laughs> best gonna get one in the chops. That is, if if she like everything comes up, mom in this scenario, she walks away with a busted lip. This is not a woman unfamiliar with the taste of the back of a hand, or yeah, or blood in her mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a kind of a terrifying moment, and again, one of those things of like, did no one notice? When they were filming this, that that just sent shivers down, like our, the collective spine of humanity. And then Dad just leaves the intervention. Yeah, it's, and, peace and I'm out. not sure what happens. We never hear from him again. It's just like, like to hell with all of you. I got a bottle of old Granddad uh, sitting in the passenger seat, and uh, we're gonna go for a ride together. And guess what? Only one of us is coming home. Tell you what, here's a new game you can all play. What are the odds I've got one tied on by the time I pull in the driveway? A hundred percent, you're dead right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a guy who's no stranger to a roadie. <laughs> then Stewart then has this dream where the movie goes black and white because um, we all dream in black and white. And his dad is drunk at the top of a church and his dad falls off and Stuart catches him in his arms. And in the dream, his father tells him that he loves him and thanks Stuart for saving his father. I feel like I get what this scene was, was doing, but I don't know if it was too on the nose or maybe there was part of it that, you know, as you talked about how you identified with parts of this film personally, that there, having read a few other reviews of it, I almost felt like maybe I was in that camp of the people that see this film aren't the ones who are going to connect with it as personally, as opposed to people who would really connect with this movie personally, aren't the people that are going to go see it. Yeah, I, I do think this is a little too on the nosy for, for my taste. And I mean, it wraps up sort of the theme of the film, which is, hey, I'm trying to save my family, but that's not necessarily realistic. You know, that that is, uh, it, it is a dream, quite literally. D to put a point on that, like, Stuart leaves. He, he leaves town. Like, the father doesn't go to rehab. The mother is not talking to him. Donnie and Jody kind of see him off. And he tells them before he gets on the Greyhound, because again, Stewart's only got about $12, you know, in both bank <laughs> accounts. Uh, he says, like, look, I'm not going to come home for Christmas this year. And then we cut to him on the show and he's revealing all of this. And he says, you know, I'm going to, but that's going to be okay. And, and maybe, you know, having that knowledge that, Yes, I'm not going to, for the first time in my life, I'm not going to be home for Christmas, but instead I'm going to be with with friends. And that I just have to deal with that. And th there's a line I actually do like here where he says, you know, rather than trying to carpet the world, I'll just wear slippers, you know. Um, and, I, and I think that's really nice. And, and again, you know, on a purely personal level like i've had those christmases where it's like i'm not i'm not dealing with family and and those are tough and and you know hearing him talk openly about it is something that uh was kind of 
I not only related to it, but it there there was a weird sort of ca- catharsis to it because it's like yes, I you know coming off the heels of this scene with the family, which again was somewhat recognizable, and coming to this moment, which is also somewhat recognizable. This whole thing kind of wraps up with him spending time with the people that he has spent the entire movie trying to help. You know, there's uh, Lori, uh, the receptionist, and Mia, the receptionist, and Julia, and his sponsors, and people from the crew. And then in the back of the room, Donnie shows up. His brother shows up. And we sort of end with this moment of him embracing his brother, and who has, instead of, expecting Stuart to come home, Donnie has come to him showing that, yes, he is growing as a character and he's improving and wants to be part of Stuart's life and has made this trip uh, south to Chicago to be with Stuart and his friends. And Stuart's... Presumably on a Greyhound bus. A hundred percent. Either that or the motorcycle. and Because we know what happened to the Accord. He he hitchhiked. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Imagine... Vincent D'Onofrio hitchhiking by the side of the road. That'd be the most pants-shitting hitchhiker you ever saw. Gets in, turns to you, and gives you that pile grin, and you're just like, look, take the car. We'll swap places. (laughs) But the movie ends here with this unresolved and potentially unresolvable gulf between his parents. Uh, We don't know really what his relationship is with his sister is going to be like really the big win of the movie is that without saying as much, I mean, he, he does kind of say this, but it's not as pointed as say the moment in the dream, but it's him sort of acknowledging, Oh, this is my real family. These are the people I care about and who care about me and support me. And I do the same for them. Oh, and by the way, here's actually my brother, a blood relative who is willing to kind of meet me halfway in terms of acknowledging how screwed up our family is, and also that we can build on that. But it it is wildly unsatisfying in terms of what would be a standard comedy. It would be like, you know, when we watch Superstar, if at the end of that, not only does Mary Catherine Gallagher not kiss a boy that she likes, she doesn't go to Hollywood, and her mother di- or grandmother dies of a stroke in front of her, and that's the end of the movie. And they canceled the they canceled the talent show. Right. Someone from the school is hit and killed in a in a DUI car accident. Right? Yeah, Harlan <laughs> Williams shows up mangled <laughs> after getting in an accident on his on his bike, just crawling, dragging himself by one bloody hand into the talent show, surviving long enough to say, "I always loved you, Mary," and then dies. Yeah, but but that's kind of where we end this movie. What was ostensibly kind of this light comedy where, you know, uh, Stuart Smalley walk jogs to Ethel Merman ends at a place where, yes, he there is a resolution for him personally, but it's not the resolution that is expected. And on the one hand, I kind of think that's the strength of the movie. It's the reason... I've spent more time than almost anything else we've covered on this show thinking about this film, not just because of the personal stuff I relate to, but because the movie ends in such a bold and audacious way of saying, yes, there is no easy answer to this situation. Like at at the point where we end this movie, Stuart's in a better place than we began it, but 
it's not a happy ending per se. It's, it's a happier ending. And I guess it reflects, you know, something he says, you know, which, you know, it's what we say in 12 step. It's, it's progress, not perfection. And, and that's sort of the resolution of this film that there is progress in the character and, and in some of the characters lives, but you got to think back home, you know, dad's still bouncing mom off the walls and drinking his old granddad. And Jody is probably still overeating and probably going to marry another shitty guy. And Stuart is not going to necessarily be part of that. Or maybe he will, but maybe it's just the same results. And it's a very like emotionally complicated resolution to a movie that should not necessarily be emotionally complicated. I agree with all of that. I mean, it was um, unexpectedly deep. When I was, you know, thinking that we were going to get more lighthearted set pieces um, rather than dealing with subject matter that's, you know, arguably more personal and, and more complicated. So um, an interesting palate cleanser to the shit sandwich that was It's Pat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that uh, for our next episode which I want to say, at least at the time of this recording, I have never seen the uh, feature film for episode five, which will be The Ladies' Man. Have, have you seen The Ladies' Man? I Yes, I have years ago, but it it left no impression on me at all. I couldn't, other than Tim Meadows is in it, I couldn't tell you any more than you already know about that movie. Excellent. So it'll be new to you. It'll be new to me, but I'm looking forward to it. That is another character that I have very fond memories of. Um, Tim Meadows performance. Again, this is, uh, uh, greatly part of his comedic legacy. Um, more than anything else that he, he did on Saturday Night Live that this sticks with him. In fact, even as he continues to do stand up now, the ladies man is presented as part of the, the marketing to, to put asses in the seats. So um, come back and see us again. We'll be able to give you some interesting sex advice uh, from the ladies man. We'll talk through that. We'll uh, have more history about uh, this character and the, the man who, who brought it to life. And um, hopefully we won't be dealing with substance abuse and emotional trauma and recovery nearly as much, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe, you know, we'll deal with sex addiction the next go round. <laughs> Almost guaranteed. At least my own. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for, uh, to listen to this episode. And, uh, please, as always, rate, review, comment, tell others about the show. Um, you can send us an email, visit our website at, uh, pick six movies. You know how the internet works. You can probably find us if, uh, if you got fingers and, uh, uh, and a computer. We'd love to hear back from you guys. So thanks a lot for spending some time with us, Bo. Until next time. Until next time. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>